Welcome to The Sharp End. I'm Craig Brown, Senior Multi-Asset Investment Specialist for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. Happy New Year to you all, and I hope you had a fantastic Christmas and New Year period. I'm joined, as usual, by David Coombs and Will McIntosh-White, Fund Managers for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. Morning, gents. Good morning. 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 On this month's episode, we're going to start by discussing a broad outline of what our thinking is for the year and what it might mean for portfolio positioning. We'll then be discussing interest rate sensitive areas of the market, including infrastructure and why we started adding last year. And then we'll turn our attention to leading German optics company, Carl Zeiss, and what attracted us to them for the first time last year too. Before we get on with the show though, here are the usual do's and don'ts to keep us all on the straight and narrow. This podcast is intended for retail and professional investors. Any views and opinions are those of the investment manager and coverage of any assets held must be taken in the context of the constitution of the fund and in no way reflect any investment recommendation. Past performance should not be seen as an indication of future performance. So 2023 was quite a roller coaster of a year, which feels a bit more like the norm these days since 2020 anyway, to be honest. But you know, the year ahead seems to be presenting some new challenges with some old ones still kicking around as well, to be frank. Um, I think I said something similar in last year's January podcast, but ultimately, you know, the ceremonial changing of my mum and dad's wall calendar on the kitchen is not really, or shouldn't be anyway, the starting gun for a complete rethink of how portfolios are positioned. But sometimes it is useful to use this change in the calendar as a bit of a refresh, test some things you think you think and whether you still think them and what it might mean for the year ahead. So let's set the table for the year ahead and touch on what we think some of these key challenges are, how the year ahead may pan out and what we might be doing to mitigate some of those risks and hopefully find some opportunities in amongst it too. So David, you can kick us off with this one. Thank you. Yeah, it is is a bit weird, isn't it, when you think about it? Uh, And yet last week, which felt like a phony week when not everyone was clearly back at their desks and yet the market suddenly sold off for a few days in a row and we saw a rotation again. You thought, is this just, there was a bit of kind of window dressing in portfolios in the last couple of weeks of December, you know, markets were up, people were just squaring off positions. Was that last week just a bit of a reaction? That was my feeling last week and I don't see anything different. So I think Calendar year, we all know from a logical perspective, the change of calendar year is meaningless. However, we all know that it isn't because enough people look at it, it means it is a thing. Okay, having said all that, all the problems we faced during the Q4 of last year and earlier quarters last year, we still face today and we have some extra things, as you put it, in the calendar year of 2024 um, for us to, to, to think about. So let, let's just quickly recap our four kind of key views last year was US would avoid recession, okay, peak rates, inflation coming down, so far so good, we got those kind of generally right. Although eventually did, anyway. Eventually, <laughs> and it took to like November, December before the market kind of came to our way of thinking, thank goodness and thank you very much. And we thought UK would go into recession, which technically it hasn't, but my God, it feels like it has. As we go into this year, has anything changed? No, not really. Um, but the market is, people do refresh because lots of economists and strategists get paid by the word. So they write a lot of stuff about this year. So that's where we get it. But none of those things have particularly changed. But there are a few new factors. Let's really focus on that. One, there's clearly elections in the US, which really matter. 
not sure that the UK, I think the UK is probably well discounted, but we'll, maybe we'll discuss that later. We have got the issue that's going on with the trade routes and the, what's the name of that? The Houthi rebels Thank in, you. In, in Yemen. And there is some noise around how long will that last? Does that, that's already having an impact on freight costs and will, will that lead to a, a rise in, in inflation again temporarily or will that be structurally or is that, transient should we can i say that word <laughs> again so we do need to think about some of those those new challenges um obviously the conflict in the middle east is ongoing and russia ukraine also conflict hit some new dynamics in the sense that you know were trump to win the election in october what does that mean for that conflict does that conflict come to an end more quickly because ukraine are forced into some kind of uh, agreement with Russia. What impact would that have on commodity prices, for example, on energy prices? So there are a lot of unknowns this year that we're not going to be able to sit here and go, this is going to happen because clearly we don't, we don't know. But I think there's enough unknowns for us to, as always, tread carefully. Should we start with the election, mm. I guess, because we, we're getting asked about that a lot. So we, we should cover that. And, and then it's just play back to when Trump was fighting <laughs> literally with, with Clinton. And if you remember, everyone thought Clinton was going to win. We thought Clinton was going to win, but we positioned for a Trump win because we felt it was tighter than maybe others thought. And actually, what did we do? We increased our exposure to the US because we thought Trump was going to be quite good for domestic US economy and would be quite protectionist. And that proved to be right. And we kind of got that right. I'm not sure the playbook is the same this time. And ironically, and we've said this before, Biden kind of carried on those protectionist type policies, albeit executed in a slightly different way through the Inflation Reduction Act, but certainly they were protectionist. And so what I don't think we're going to see is, is a rollback on protectionism if Trump or Biden win. And even if they are replaced at the primary processes, I don't think we're, we're rolling back on those prote protectionist tendencies because we're also seeing it in Europe with some more populist leaders and, and more right-wing type leaders in, in Europe. So I don't think we're going back to rampant globalization anytime soon. So what are the risks? So if Trump wins, there are a lot of question marks around the quality of the people he takes into government around him. What will that cabinet look like? He had some quite sensible people around him in year one and two before he fired them all last time. So yeah, who's going to work for him? Okay, okay, I know money talks and power, but it, we, there is a worry. What will that mean, as I said, for the Ukraine conflict? Does that bring it to an end more quickly? If Biden wins, which seems quite incredible at the moment, given he's clearly a man of failing health, but if he wins, that's probably okay because... That's quite right. <laughs> yeah, and he's not doing very much, right? So, <laughs> so it's left the people around him are running the country. Let's be quite frank about it. And outside of the culture wars and some of the high the rhetoric that goes on in the, the sales newspapers, the actual underlying economic strategy is relatively benign. Or you know, okay, it keeps raising debt. Of course, I guess what we don't know is what if either of those two get removed by their parties ahead of that and who are they likely to be and what are their policies likely to be. Taking all that into consideration, Trump accepted. I'm relatively relaxed, I think. Trump is, as always, you know, and again, take out the personality, take out all the nonsense in terms of purely economic perspective. I think Trump is more of a 
worry this time than last time. The difficulty is, I mean, as you say, ultimately, until we know who it's actually going to be, there's almost not too much point in doing too much oh, no, worth being no. wary of. The thing with John, what you do know is you're going to get deregulation again, which is positive. You know, he has historically removed a lot of the red tape. Well, positive um, for businesses, not necessarily positive for consumers. Positive for businesses, <laughs> yeah. I mean, as I say, it, but this is the problem, isn't it? You've got to be careful where you go. What is positive? Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about markets getting up, <laughs> yeah. ultimately. Um, you know, Just you, you take your political hat off and take your emotional hat off. Yeah. Ultimately, deregulation is good for business and will likely drive markets higher, I think. My question is, what is this election going to be fought on? Because at the moment, the US economy is still so strong that if it manages to continue that for much of this year, they can't go on the economy, right? You can't beat the drum on the economy. It makes it more difficult to say, well, China's stealing our jobs because the US is at full employment. And so there's maybe less of an electorate to appeal to from that perspective. So that's where I'm sort of wondering, where would you go with that? I mean, and... Some of the things I've been, I, mean, I, I was listening to a Trump rally the other day, um, you know, because I don't want someone to, has to, well, someone has to, and I don't <laughs> want to read other people's opinions about it. You know, I want to hear actually what he's saying. And obviously yeah. immigration is going to be a huge thing. Yeah. There is going to be a lot of mudslinging. Obviously Biden has had a few issues with his son um, and some of the potential corruption there. Yeah. But, you know, in theory, it's remarkable how unpopular Biden is given the strength of the economy. And my other question is what they do around fiscal responsibility and as you say, Biden spent a huge amount of money and those budget deficits are very large. Now, typically, a normal Republican candidate would probably come in and say, we need to address this. And, and maybe you focus the election on that and being more responsible. Rather than tax cuts, actually, because obviously last time it was tax cuts, wasn't it? Which obviously yeah. was hugely beneficial to corporate America, because unlike the UK, which raises corporate taxes, with the Conservative government, the Republican Party reduced corporate taxes. And that was hugely positive for the S&P, it feels less likely you get that kicker next time. It, I think you're right. It is fiscal responsibility that will be the ticket. That, certainly most Republicans talk. I mean, again, Trump well, that, is I mean, not, that's a typical Republican ticket, right? It's fiscal yeah, conservatism. It is. It's raining in the debt. It's smaller government. It's all of these things. And that, that should be good for US is. Treasuries, actually, which we've been adding to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although you've got an added uncertainty if it, if it is Trump. I mean, the thing is, is he might cut taxes anyway. He's a wild card, right? I mean, <laughs> but, but those corporate taxes are already very low. They are. So it's a less obvious place to go to again. And I mean, mathematically, is, yeah. what benefit would he actually get from doing that? But this is why, coming to your point about why it will be different this time, it's got to be fought on different yeah. areas than previously. And it's, it's going to be important to understand what it is. But do they double down on China? Let's say, I think. Almost oil, oil companies will probably do relatively well if Trump gets in. He's yes. made it very, very clear yes. that you know he wants to peel some of that back. And I do worry a little bit for some of the sustainable businesses in renewable energy who have benefited significantly from you know things like the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a ridiculous name really, uh, but very focused on support for cleaner, greener energy. And many of these businesses, you know, some of them have doubled just on the back of the value of the tax credits given to them from that. And as say, if you come in and you do want to do tax cuts, then you've got to take it away from somewhere else, I think. And, and that would be an obvious area for me where, particularly under Trump, they might attack. And that makes me a little bit wary of that space. So, so to sum up, I think this election probably matters more than many in terms of our strategy 
But the point is, we can't move yet because there's just not enough clarity. But I think it's fair to say, when we do find out or we get some better read at who the candidates are, then we can start to think about how we want to position. And it will affect our exposure to US Treasury bonds mm. and will affect our exposure to the US equities in terms of how do we want to tilt, trying to anticipate what the impact will be. Of course, what also will matter is who who holds Congress and the, and the Senate, well, particularly Congress, actually, mm. post the election as well. And if we get a Republican-led Congress and a Democrat White House, that's almost nirvana, I think, from what I, I can see. You get the usual bit of restraint from the me- just the mechanics of the political system, don't you, ultimately? Uh, I, I, that's right. I mean, if, I, if I had to make a wish now, that's what I'd be wishing for, I think. I guess the other thing we probably shouldn't forget is that the Americans do like voting in an incumbent. You know, if you go back since World War II, apart from Trump, who was a bit of a special sit, maybe you could argue a special situation, a bit of a wild card, a bit of a you know cultural backlash of sorts, maybe back in 2015-16. It's only been Jimmy Carter um, and the first George, George Bush, Bush yeah. who lost as the incumbent, and both times the economy was basically in the toilet. So and I, I've read that, but I, I I'm not sure that's relevant because well because Trump's a wild card again. <laughs> well, because Biden's clearly unwell, so and he's very unpopular. So I I mean I know people keep saying that people, Americans like voting in the incumbent. I'm just not sure. I, know, I, just, I think incumbency bias is a real. Factor, not just with the US, but I think I'm incumbents not, okay. tend uh, to we'll get a to little kicker, to, don't they? I think. We'll have to agree to disagree. <laughs> I think we will have to agree to disagree. Uh, I, I, I don't buy that, but anyway. So it might just be worth just taking it back and thinking about markets. And I think one of the interesting things you say is where we were last year, in terms of our thinking, not a huge amount has changed. But what I think has changed is markets to a certain extent. Yes. Um, because we came to last year with everyone feeling very defensive, positioned quite defensively, Markets looked reasonable value, and we went into that year with a reasonable amount of risk. And we'd started building up our sort of US Treasury position, UK gilts. I think we had some, which we subsequently sold in February, sort of traded around that position. But then we ended the year with yields actually about where they were, interestingly, having had this sort of wild ride through the year. But if you think, if you take US Treasury yields, you started the year about 3.8, 3.8, finished the year about 3.8. But currently, we're in a position where inflation is much lower and falling. Rates are much higher, but likely to come down. So I'd argue right now, US Treasuries look much more attractive. You know, they're giving you a real yield. So you're getting a yield at the moment that's still higher than headline inflation. Whereas at the start of the year, you were still, mm. you know, getting a yield that was well below the headline inflation rate. So we built that position up. We used the volatility through the year to, you know, get it to the highest level actually that we've ever had in yeah, government yeah. bonds, and also using that particular weakness in the autumn time to extend durations and make our portfolio more sensitive to rates. And that helped us at the back end of the year. And I'd argue that we are looking to still keep that position on, you know, for the yeah. rest of this year. I mean, I was talking to a journalist yesterday and expressing that actually the reason our bond positions are the highest they've ever been is because right now bonds look, I think, more attractive on a risk-reward basis than equities. Mm. And, you know, we're not the only people noticing that, right? And I think, you know, we will have even more bonds in the portfolio over the next three to six months, obviously depending how markets move from here. But bonds are a real attractive asset class, which we've not said that for 15 years. 
And our strategy is looking very different as a result of that. And so I think it's, it's going to be a very interesting year because equities, to your point, equities are not looking as good value today as they were this time last year. I mean, the S&P was up 25% last year. Yeah. So, and the Magnificent Seven, all those, you know, AI stocks, et cetera. So, yes, it, new can do, mm-hmm. irrelevant. But in terms of just comparing now to then, that is relevant and it is different. Bonds look good value because the returns are above inflation. They weren't a year ago. Equities are more expensive than they were a year ago. Um, and our strategy reflects that in that our bond weighting is much higher than a year ago and our equity weighting is probably maybe even a little lower than it was a year ago, which is a long-winded way of saying we like bonds more than equities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to your point as well, it's, it's, it's wrestling with what the market has priced in, right? Because you look at that soft landing and it feels like in Q4 the market went there, right? The market has priced in this US benign economic outcome, soft landing, right? Use your own terminology. There's a million of them out there now. Avoids recession. Yeah, exactly. Avoids recession. Unemployment stays pretty low. You know, GDP growth probably ticks along. Maybe there's a shallow recession, but either way, it's and not company a disaster. Earnings company earnings don't really up. crater. Yeah. You know, so it feels like the market has moved to that scenario. So you're sitting here now and you know, in early January wondering, like, where's the upside surprise coming from equity? Which kind of goes to your point of that risk reward being, well, actually, the US economy is not just going to have to deliver that now. Is it going to our company earnings going to have to deliver these huge outsized swings, even versus the lofty expectations that the market moved to at the end of Q4? And let's not forget, companies are struggling to give accurate guidance at the moment because we're still, we're now about a year out of kind of post-COVID economy. So we are getting back to normal. And because of interest rates are much higher than they've been for 15, 20 years, companies are not as confident in their guidance of where they Mm. think profits will be. That means analysts are struggling to be accurate around their estimates. around, And that means there's lots more uncertainty now because the potential variance of outcomes is much, much greater because lots of companies are having to borrow at higher rates and they don't know in what shape their customers are in. Mm-hmm. Are they going to continue buying or not? And so all that uncertainty is going to play through. Now, that will create opportunities because it will create volatility. That's that's helpful for us as as it was last year. I mean, it didn't feel helpful at the time, but it clearly was given the returns we finally achieved because we were able to trade through that volatility. I'm afraid we're probably going to have to do the same again this year. Feels like a good point to move on to uh, our next topic, which is around rate-sensitive names. So, you know, we spoke about that bond yields moving around a lot last year, and no, no sector probably felt it quite as much, perhaps, as these interest rate-sensitive sectors that include infrastructure. But, you know, for those of you, our listeners, that have heard us speak about the way we think about investing money, our broad sort of investment philosophy, if I was to use industry speak, we sort of like to pride ourselves on thinking we're a bit of a pragmatic bunch. And essentially, we think that most assets look to look attractive at some point for a certain price ultimately. And you know, last year, for the first time ever in the portfolios, we started adding infrastructure exposure after they did take a huge hit through the middle of the year on those higher interest rates. Because again, they tend to be very, very sensitive to the direction of travel for interest rates, those particular names. But but Will, what was it last year that suddenly made, made us think, this is the time? So I think just to understand our journey around infrastructure, it's probably worth just taking a step back and looking at the space on its own and saying, what actually is it? Because it is a mixed space. And I think it does get lumped together a little bit. And you've got to be, again, a little bit careful and actually sort of dig down into what the actual underlying assets are. And we've spent quite a lot of time doing that over the last 
four months or so. But if you look, infrastructure funds started to get launched, I think, just before the financial crisis. I think probably yes, the older was. one was about was 2006. Gordon, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair. Um, and the focus of it then, historically, was sort of these, they're called PPP, the sort of old procurement programs. So essentially, the government would essentially partner with these businesses and they would build and operate these sort of social infrastructure facilities on an ongoing basis, like Hospitals, a hospital, yeah. exactly, or a school. And they were seen as low-risk, government-linked exposure, which to a certain extent that was true. But I think under the bonnet, as ever, it was a bit more complicated than that. So some of those risks were also around things like construction of assets, uh, because they were building these businesses, sometimes things like costs overrun, or even more complex than that in some cases, because they actually outsourced the maintenance mm. of those contracts. So if you remember when Carillion went under... It was quite a big scandal that suddenly realised that many of these infrastructure companies use Carillion to run these businesses and they were doing so on these razor-thin margins and then anyway, that caused all sorts of problems on top. And then as the government started to do less and less of these projects, they kind of got a bit frowned upon after a while, didn't they? Because mm. viewed as infrastructure making far too big a margins off yeah. the government, this sort of easy money being made. Um, and so these infrastructure funds pivoted to other areas, so more regulated assets like gas distribution, transmission, or water assets, oh, yeah. which has not been their most successful area that they've been <laughs> in, given some of the problems around that space. Um, Demand-based assets like toll roads, student accommodation, um, and then lastly, renewables, which has been a big area, and you've got some which are pure play renewable infrastructure funds and others that are just part of that, so things like soda farms, wind farms, etc. I'd say the reason we kind of shied away, partly because of valuation, and those valuation methodologies have always been quite complicated in this mm. space. I think they haven't expected value or net asset value, yeah. um, which is a sort of perceived value, if you like, but the way that's calculated is a bit complicated, and there are a few sort of data points going into yeah. that that we've had question marks over. So we've never really been 100% certain that those are the correct valuations for those assets. And actually, many times the share price is actually traded above the value yeah. of those assets. So you were paying a premium for these and often only getting a 5 6% yield, which we felt wasn't particularly attractive. Others felt it was given when rates were zero. And as you said in your opening point, Craig, that as those rates have moved up and the price of money has got higher, suddenly your 5 6% didn't look so attractive. Some of the complications around these assets just sort of came to light. Some of the underlying operating assets weren't performing particularly well, particularly around things like student accommodation, yeah. uh, where they've had some problems there. And so you had an issue where a lot of people ran for the door at the same time as yields were rising, particularly in those sort of trust weeks, which is when they really took the pain. And suddenly, they were trading a big discount. And suddenly, mm -hmm. you were able to look at that and say, okay, let's check we're happy with the underlying operating assets. And now, suddenly, we're getting that 5 6% a year, sometimes a little bit more, actually, and also able to pick these things at, at big discounts to the perceived asset value. Mm -hmm and giving you a nice margin of safety. It's a little bit like they're telling you it's worth a quid. You think, yeah, but really maybe it's worth 90p, but you're actually buying for 60p. Yeah. Essentially, you know, because of that, you've got to give that discount because you think, well, it's a bit opaque how they, you know, lots of different ways to skin that valuation cap. But yeah, that margin of safety, all of a sudden, I suppose, just completely alters that risk reward picture for you. That's right. And also, I think there was there was a lot of confusion around and disappointment around the inflation linking. I think many investors thought it was literally, if inflation went up 2%, your revenues went up 2%. <laughs> 
And the world is never that simple. <laughs> there was not. a lag and lots of other complications around that. And so it, they do reflect inflation, but it's not one for one. And it actually comes in a bit lower. And again, I think people probably, did they understand exactly what they were getting? As we've gone through the complexities of these, we've realized just how complicated they are <laughs> and can understand why some people maybe didn't fully understand them. And when they came to market, maybe some of the virtues were highlighted a bit more, shall we say, than mm. some of the complexities. <laughs> I think what we're saying now is the complexities are in the price. Yeah. And we like to look at these assets at the price, price they're currently valued at. And as you say, there is a margin of safety there now, which there clearly wasn't when they were mm. being priced at a premium. And people just chasing that yield because you know yield was scarce because everything was at zero interest rates. Bonds weren't yielding very much. So this was an obvious beneficiary of that. And now people don't really like this space. And mm -hmm. that's always what makes us prick our ears up, right? When there's an area that people really don't like, and some of these company share prices have dropped, what, 30%, 40% of the last 12, 18 months. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden that, that starts to look attractive for it's us. It's the old peak pessimism or trough sentiment, <laughs> well, as, as some call it, on a certain asset. We've always said, you know, the best trades you ever do are the most uncomfortable ones. Yeah. And that's kind of what you what we're paid for is to make those uncomfortable trade when everybody else is selling is to do the work. And as long as you're not buying something that's completely ludicrous, which yeah. you could be if you're not careful, yeah. and you do the work and you just think, actually, yeah, we're, we're willing buyers off to stress yeah. sellers. You need markets like last year to create these opportunities. And the big difference, again, for strategy compared to five years ago or three, even three years ago is that as a multi-asset fund, we can now buy bonds. We can now buy infrastructure. These are two examples of asset classes that really weren't very interesting or played a very small or no part of our thinking. And now they are becoming, particularly bonds, a significant part of the portfolio, and infrastructure in some of our funds increasingly becoming a significant part of the portfolio. Right. Now, as Monty Python once said, for something completely different. Um, given how much time we're all spending staring at screens these days, it seems a sensible place or a sensible thought process that eye health might be racing up the agenda for a lot of people. And you know, you've got the aging population to worry about as well. They're all going to need some ocular support. I'm sure myself included as somebody who wore glasses when I was younger and was told very, very forcefully by the optician, you'll have to go back to them one day. So I'm sure that's a picture for many. But last year, we bought German company Carl Zeiss Meditech, who are leaders in the specialism of ophthalmology, medical lasers, but again, play into a lot of those themes. So David, if you'll excuse the pun, what caught your eye about Carl Zeiss? God, you're hilarious. Um, <laughs> now, interestingly enough, uh, we're not here to talk about holidays because <laughs> that's totally inappropriate. But I was in Berlin last year on holiday, a uh, uh, city break, and I went to the Stasi Museum. Okay. And you're thinking, where is he going with this? And uh, Carl Zeiss were very big with the Stasi. <laughs> so I'm not sure that's a great ESG story. Um, but um, originally, you know, you saw those old sort of and you may need to youtube this if you're under 40 but the old michael kane spy films the you know <laughs> the stars used to have these little cameras in their ties and in and in the in their bags and all this sort of stuff that was carl zeiss actually <laughs> um so they are the, what they were and, and and are the world leaders in lens technology and um fortunately the stars don't exist anymore um <laughs> but carl zeiss has clearly moved on since then and in terms of the complexity of eye solutions, we take it for granted.
But you know, this takes a huge amount of R&D, and, and Carl Zeiss have increased their the research and development significantly over the last couple of years and made some acquisitions in terms of eye surgery, you know, cataracts and retinal repairs and laser surgery as well. So they really cover kind of the waterfront of medical treatments and solutions in this space. They've just done an acquisition which will um, uh, increase their their footprint in the US, which has been a market they've not really penetrated. Mm -hmm. And that's quite exciting as well. So a very clear growth strategy, both from an acquisition perspective, but also in terms of organic growth and increasing research and development to keep that market uh, leading edge. In fact, one of the interesting cases that need to spend on research and development is probably going to start to come down a little bit actually in the next couple of years, which will also be enhancing for margins. On top of that, the share price was fell, what, 40-odd percent last year, I think yeah, it was? Yeah, and some, I think, a bit more. I think half last year. So, so one of the reasons we've never bought it before, to be honest, it was always such an expensive stock. Mm. And it came down with a lot of the med tech names, which I think we referred to in yeah. in, in, in previous podcasts. And it, it came down with a lot of the other med tech names. I mean, how anti-obesity was going to stop short-sightedness, I, I don't quite know. But anyway, and also I think they did disappoint a little bit in terms of because they'd increased research and development margins were a bit lower as so the market got a bit worried about that. So it was an opportunity for us to buy a high-quality business at a much lower price. I think that's true. And a lot of the reason we like Medtech as a space generally is is your very simple idea of people are getting older and the older you get, the more cataracts you inevitably get. I still think that just the sheer amount of time people spend in front of screens is terrible, ultimately. And, you know, from a younger and younger age, which is going to impact people's eyes. I mean, I hate to think how much we spend, how many hours staring at our screens and probably go home and watch a couple of hours at Netflix. <laughs> I don't know what the screen time is, but it's not great. And, you know, that that is definitely a strain on the eye. It can cause myopia. And, you know, if you have myopia, so short-sightedness, you can either get that treated with laser or you end up with contacts and it actually leads to more cataracts later in life if you have myopia so all of those things unfortunately stack up for pretty poor eye health for people going forward and so again find those businesses that are helping solve that you know with increasingly high-end solutions to to fix that you know it's remarkable the way to actually take out the implant a new lens yeah. to replace your cloudy lens which is ultimately what a cataract is which i think is Incredible. So it's, it's got a very nice long-term tailwinds behind yeah. it. As you say, the slight difference with Carl Zeiss has got a larger Asia footprint, um, particularly 25% of China. So one of its other areas where it struggled last year was sort of twofold. Well, one, you've got a slowing China anyway, right? You know, their recovery coming out of COVID has not been brilliant. You've also had a clampdown on corruption in the healthcare space. Uh, which has meant sort of less procedures, less hospital spend generally. And you've got this concern over a move to, it's called VBB, I can't remember what that actually stands for, but ultimately what it is, is sort of procurement en masse, where they're buying equipment, they're buying it across as many hospitals in China as you can and cutting the price quite heavily. And so that is coming up and there's some suggestions that those price cuts could be pretty severe. Um, so... That is, again, one of the reasons why the share price has been on the floor. But for us, I think we felt, yeah, okay, it's a risk, but it's now a very known risk. And the market's very much pricing that in. And as you were talking about before, sometimes you've got to buy things that feel a little bit uncomfortable at the time. Has been a sort of high quality asset that we've had on the bench for a long time, really, haven't we? Yeah. And in terms of, yeah, is market leading in two areas? One is re refractive surgery or laser, if you like. And I, I guess if, 
for those listening, if if you see the brand Visumax, the 800 laser is coming out soon. <laughs> I've never had my eyes laser, so it means nothing to me. But yeah, you know, they are you know global leaders in that space, and and they're, and they're also global leaders in uh, cataract surgery yeah. as well. Which, as you've already said, clearly there's a tailwind to that. They're also a, a big leader in uh, microsurgery, um, because again want to have uh, lenses and uh, microscopes, yeah. um, so, uh, which is, again, used hugely in eye care. So market leading, tailwinds, big fall in share price, high technology in solutions, actually, yeah, yeah. recurring revenue. I think that's kind of what probably what we've done. If you look at the med tech exposure in the portfolio from the top down, we've found companies that have that edge, have leading products, things that are hard to replicate, you know, dominant positions in their in in their markets, and just you know, we've got that now with you know the Dexcoms in in continuous glucose monitoring, the Edwards with heart valves, the Carl Zeisses with with optic healthcare. It's almost like we're building this sort of mini stable of gold standard specialisms in medtech, which is kind of where you want to be, really, rather than just having one that does waterfront everything. Yeah, we were saying you know, we want the whole ears, nose, and throat, don't we? <laughs> so, you know, we've looked at ears before with uh, <laughs> hearing aid businesses. We've now done eye care. We're, we're struggling on the nose, but we'll. We'll get we're back actually to working you. around the, we're around the body. We'll get, we'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Indeed. And just to round off on that point on screen time, uh, we've been asked a few times why we don't video this and we're only thinking of you. Uh, less screen time, so just in your ears. Um, so is that part of the show where we get to do uh, a bit of whinging and grumbling? That won't change just because the calendar has changed over. So any other business, David, why don't you start us off with the first one of the year? Yeah, on the contrary, I have loads more to moan about. So I'm going to slightly controversial. I'm going to talk about the post office. It's quite topical. Don't panic. I'm kind of looking at it from slightly from a, uh, the second order effect, actually, in terms of if you if you think about forget a lot of all the politics, but clearly at the nub of this was about technology that wasn't working and that people didn't believe the technology wasn't working. And if we think about AI theme last year, how everything is moving towards greater technology, greater interaction with bots, etc. I do wonder if, if if what's happened with Horizon is a pause for thought in that businesses may have to rethink about customer interactions and then the reliance on on the accuracy and reporting of these software behemoths and whether we're going to see new legislation on the back of this. Uh, I know it's a UK story at the moment and, and not global. I mean, I, I don't think ITV has sold that to uh, Netflix just yet. But I, I do I do wonder if this story... And I say, got to be careful because it's a big UK story and it's this week and, and whatever. But are there some ramifications? Certainly, we've all had a whinge before under mm-hmm. AOB of dealing with call centers or chatbots. And it's been completely painful. And BA have had lots of problems, haven't they, with their, their apps, etc. I had an issue only this week with another app that will remain nameless that was was shocking. And let's not even mention the re- dealing with the railway companies. So... <laughs> So I, I do wonder if, for serious for a moment, if, if there is some reflection and there will be some other impacts on consumer businesses using digital. Computer says no on steroids, really, isn't it? It absolutely, absolutely. was. It absolutely, absolutely was. And I'm not sure. It, we'll sort out the individuals, I'm sure. But is there a wider impact the high-level implications of all yeah, this? Yeah, I, I think that's quite interesting. Does it mean, you know, even companies like ourselves who are, you know, moving down the digital, do we have to go arm in arm and not completely cut off that human interaction. Mm. I, I think this is a bit of a bit of a lesson for everybody. Yeah, I'll have to agree with that. 
Will. My mind is not as philosophical as that, I'm afraid. You know, I, didn't, I didn't know we'd gone so serious on the Maybe that we invited, you know, Plato yeah. or something onto the... Uh, onto the- I, was, I was just going to have a moan about burgers. <laughs> <laughs> My moan is that, like, we all know about shrinkflation. Shrinkflation. Shrinkflation, yeah. And my man is that there's a new new game in town. Actually, it's not particularly new, um, but it's been annoying me for a while. And that is sort of split inflation. Uh, I'm going to make that up. I'm sure there's probably a better word I could have come up with. Splitflation. Splitflation. Yeah, there yeah, you go. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Splitflation. <laughs> um, and that is where you order a meal and it doesn't come with anything. Um, ah. and it's absolute, like, so burger and chips used to be a drive. You don't get that anymore. You want burger. Do you want anything with it? You want the chicken. What does it come with? Nothing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, you have to order your greens on the side, your chips on the side. I'm like, come on, it's getting ridiculous. And the, and the chicken I was saying is probably about 15 quid. Um, yeah. oh, you're going to tell me I'm going to the wrong posh restaurants. So I'm going to cut you off before you do. <laughs> McDonald's, you always yeah, get a fry meal, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do have some sympathy with that because it is annoying when you go in a restaurant and you order, you order, I don't know, the steak and then it turns up. And you've just got the steak because you forgot to ask, like, does Excuse it come me, I'm celiac. I'm glad anything turns up. <laughs> <laughs> Very fair point. Okay, so I'll round us off on any other business. And just a warning to listeners, if you are listening in the car with children, it might be the time to turn off and listen to this next bit afterwards. It's not going to be profanity or anything like that, but I'm going to talk about Elf on the Shelf. So for parents amongst us, we'll know the hell of December when the Elf on the Shelf seems to turn up at our doors and stay until... Christmas Day. Now, Christmas is a stressful time for everyone and, you know, and parents get stressed out around and we got the kids the right stuff. Have the kids got enough? Now I've got to get up on a ladder and break my neck putting the uh, Christmas lights up on the house and there are pine needles all over the floor. It's a very stressful time. The last thing we need is to spend every evening wondering what on earth this bloody elf is going to do the next morning, quite frankly, and coming up with all these inventive ways of the elf's going to do this and then it's going to make a sandwich and then it's going to be halfway up the staircase doing something else. It's too stressful. I don't know when this became a thing, quite frankly. I lived my life very happily a few years ago before the elf on the shelf really became a cultural phenomenon that is in the UK. And I would just like the elf to stay in the North Pole next year. Maybe I'm being a bar humbug curmudgeon, but it's just too annoying. I'm really enjoying watching David's face. He's had. I have got a no cl- idea what you're talking about. One clue what you're talking <laughs> About. And if you're daft enough to give in to this and follow the momentum of everybody else in the classroom's parents, then more for you, frankly. <laughs> yeah, but you're not really the only one with the kids. Comes yes, back you, going, Everyone's you, talking about their self on the shelf, Dad. What do they mean? Don't worry, son. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, be the parent that doesn't. Stand <laughs> out from the, the trend. Crowd. Fuck the trend. God, you're far too soft. I am too soft. Really. God, millennial I'm parents. Bit, bit, bit. Unbelievable. <laughs> So anyway, that's us done um, for, the, for, for the month. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we hope you'll join us again for the next monthly instalment of The Sharp End. If you didn't listen at the time, please feel free to go back and listen to those earlier episodes. Last month, Will, David, Rahab and I had a bit of a Christmas party um, and ran the rule over David's 2023 predictions to see if those predictive powers had improved or indeed diminished during the year and whether he could improve on that score from the year previous. I won't let the cat out of the bag. So if you want to know how that panned out, I'm afraid you're going to have to go back and listen. So you can subscribe to the podcast on all the major podcasting platforms. Don't forget to hit the subscribe and follow button. Feel free to rate and review us as well if you've got some time. And if you want to hear more about the Rathbone multi-asset funds, please speak to your usual Rathbones contact, your financial advisor, or visit the website at www.rathbonesam.com. Thanks again.